Just a heads up that this episode contains a handful of swears. Uh, I believe this is the first episode that we have aired that has those, and I think they are uh, relevant to the conversation, so I left them in. Uh, thank you, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by James Quilly. James has covered courts, crime, and police for the Los Angeles Times, or as he puts it on his website, James Quilly is a journalist, author, and general arbiter of fact from horseshit. He's previously had a similar position for the Star Ledger. He's our second Pulitzer winner to join us. He was part of the 2015 breaking news team that covered the San Bernardino terrorist attacks that won a Pulitzer. And he's also a book author, two novels. And like myself, James is a graduate of College of New Jersey. Hey, James. Lions. What's up, Mark? <laughs> yes. Go Lions. Let's get to the, the, the journalism origin story. You're from New York City. What's your journalism origin story? Uh, so I grow up reading the New York Daily News, staring at the back page. I still have the chronic disease of being a long-suffering Knicks and Mets fan. And I just decide I want to be a sports writer. I want to be the guy writing. I didn't know the phrase the wood back then, but I want to be the guy writing that story. I was reading, you know, a lot of, a lot of Mike Lupica, I believe Frank Isola was the beat reporter back then. Yep. And this is, this is, you know, this is for, for the sports oriented people here. This is the early 1990s when New York sports is just dominating everything. The Knicks and Rangers are in the finals at the same time. I am, I'm obsessed and it's all I want to do, but I also have a cop dad. My father was a New York city police detective and just about the gruffest, angriest one you could imagine. So this is all, all happening also while New York is, you know, veering towards, um, Rudy Giuliani being the mayor and the NYPD getting in more than a few truly horrific shooting and force cases. So I am trying to, you know, grow grow up. I think it went in high school, my high school paper, I covered our, our basketball team in the Monsignor Farrell High School in Staten Island, New York, also the Lions, which is, a, you know, so I'm building myself up for that, building myself up for that, get to college, get to TCNJ, start at the Signal, do, you know, writing about a mix of sports and music. And then one day, I'm also in Greek life. I hear a rumor that basically a local blood set had broken into one of the sorority houses, robbed the place and tied some, some, some girl up. I don't have any knowledge or background in police reporting. I don't have any intent to be doing this for the signal, but somehow I end up checking it out. I honestly think I might have checked it out more as a rumor, as an interested and admittedly stupid member of Greek life than as a journalist. But I call up the Ewing Police Department. I'm like, hey, this is crazy rumor. The Bloods did whatever at the, the ZTA house. You know, I know it's probably just nonsense. They're like, nope, nope. What do you want to know? Date, time, et cetera. And, you know, I'm looking at a police report about an hour later. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. This is interesting. And you have to tell me this. Like, there's a basic, you know, I start looking into, you know, whatever the government code section is under the Oprah Act in, in New Jersey at the time. And it's like, oh, wait, this, this is, this is, these are public records. This is, you know, I had just never ventured outside of the sports pop culture reporting, even through my first year and a half at TCNJ. And that kind of flipped a switch in my brain. I unofficially made myself the campus police beat reporter because I don't know, no one really seemed to try to stop me. That kind of launched me down that, that path. First, right out, first out of college, my first job was an internship at the Star Ledger. There were only two news slots and somebody had a volunteer for the night crime shift and the other kid didn't want to do it. And same thing, just left to my own devices and, and no one else was working that late. So anything interesting was my problem. And I really have not let go of the law enforcement beat since then. Was there anything in your upbringing other than the gruff father cop 
that lend itself to telling stories about crime? Probably a little bit of a, uh, again, pop culture obsession. I'm a huge comic book fan and was a big Daredevil guy, big Batman guy, still am to this day. There is a, there's a Daredevil painting over this desk that I'm sitting at right now. So yeah, just, I mean, obviously that's fiction, but still always had me, I was always interested in grittier stories and urban stories and, you know, people low on the food chain, desperate situations, or, you know, fa facing off against power structures, you know, the cops weren't always the good guys in those stories, especially not in a lot of Batman comics. So that, all, I think that also, obviously, you know, different, you're, you're looking at it a lot differently as a 13 year old seeing bam, pow, kapow, than you are as an adult, <laughs> you know, dealing with ingrained power structures and biases and all the things I write about now, but that, that also probably put the wheels in motion. And how did you wind up at the Los Angeles Times? So I was at the Star Ledger for five years in 2014. I was starting to look at other options. I don't know how much you've covered the Newhouse drama in the past on this show, but for those who might remember the, you know, Star Ledger is owned by Advanced Publications is in the Newhouse food chain. They were starting to do that thing they did at the Oregonian, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where they were turning their papers into media groups. And I found out my pay was going to be a little dependent on clicks going forward. You know, a certain percentage would be required on page views. And that was not really how I wanted to operate. So I started looking for other jobs. And like everything else in our business, it's sources more than skill. Somebody who used to work at the Ledger was one of my former reporting partners at the Ledger was now covering state politics at the LA Times. Told me about an opening for a breaking news gig. Helped point me to the right direction of somebody to apply to. And it went... I think on Monday, I had the first like flirtation. Hey, maybe you want to work here. Maybe we want you to work here too. Phone call with a managing editor. By Friday, they were telling me, here's the offer. You have a week to decide if you want to move. I had never been to LA before. I had never been to California before. And I took the job blind because I don't know how many times you get the phone call from the LA Times, but kind of worked out. Been here for eight years now. I met the woman I was eventually going to marry. I've been married for a whole, whole three months. I'm flashing the ring to no one who can see anything because <laughs> this is an audio, audio medium. It's all right. Uh, and, you know, things kind of worked out. That, well, that, okay. They, indeed, they did. Now, 2014, as I understand it, you were in Ferguson, Missouri for the protests over Michael Brown's death. For those unfamiliar, I think most people are familiar, but he was unarmed, shot by a police officer, a story that got a lot of attention at the time. And I imagine the protests and everything around them, police, got a little hairy. What was that experience like? Yeah, Ferguson was was definitely one of the more, at least at that point in my career, one of the more extreme situations I'd been in. You know, I, I talked, I brought this up before, you know, my, my worldview of policing and my worldview of, you know, how to cover these things has really changed dramatically over the course of my career, especially with my, my upbringing, you know, seeing... Newark was the first time I really saw the dynamic between, you know, police and the communities they serve really from the other end of it. And Ferguson was just the, the really like the, the kind of graduate class in, in that, you know, I get there and I want to say within an hour, and I, and I just for, for, to be clear, I wasn't there in August in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. I was there in November. I landed around the, within an hour, either before or after of the decision not to charge Darren Wilson, who was the officer who shot Michael Brown, right, right around the time that's announced. So I'm on Florissant for less than an hour before two cops point rifles at me because I ended up running towards what I thought was a loud sound or an explosion because that's just how my brain works. And two, I believe Missouri Highway Patrol officers spin around with, with rifles just because they see someone running, you know, so I don't, I don't think I was that close to getting shot, but, you know, that was eye-opening. The next night I was covering a separate protest outside of the police headquarters. They moved after a couple of hours of standoff, it moved over to City Hall 
someone smashed windows on a cop car or fire starts, tear gas canisters are fired. I'm caught up in a cloud, you know, walking around, can't see a damn thing. I bump into a police cruiser and look up and again, somebody swat gear with the, uh, if you've ever seen a, ca- a ca- pepper spray container, the one with like the nozzle thing on the bottom, not the nozzle, the fat drum kind of on the bottom, just pointing it basically in my face about, you know, a foot from my eyeball screaming to, you know, back up. So yeah, that was a, that was an intense couple of days, but I also met a lot of really good people there. You know, one of the, th- I, I always tell stories about that week from the kind of chaotic tension, protest, riotous setting. And that was a lot of it, but I also, you know, the, the story I was most proud of there was actually just a human profile. I met this woman whose nickname was, was Mama Cat. She was, I found her the first night outside of police headquarters, just serving food to the protesters. She was a, was a chef and she, you know, had some injuries. I think she was arthritic, so she didn't feel she was up to marching, but she wanted to keep the protesters fed, was kind of a mother hen for this younger generation. You know, she was a black woman who grew up in and around St. Louis and could speak a lot to how the area is still to this day, you know, something of a segregated city, not officially, but through redlining, housing issues, other things like that. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the story I, I, I tell most from there, though, is, is you know, for all the, the bedlam, I met this incredible person who was just, you know, this, this, this wasn't a thing on CNN to them. This wasn't something they just got involved in because of the, the hands up, don't shoot phrase. And it obviously became a permanent part of the lexicon when we talk about police brutality cases. It was this woman's life is this fight and this fight that's happening down the street from her. And the to do what you do, I feel like it requires, like there are different journalists that I cover that, that are, have, you know, expertises in different things, but I feel like to do what you do requires almost a certain toughness to it. Am, am I reading that right? That there's a certain mentality to covering, as, as you said, to covering a protest and running towards loud sounds. What, what do you, for people that might want to do what say, that might say, oh, I want to do what he does. What, what would you say with regards to, to being tough? I don't know about toughness because I don't really like consider myself a tough guy or anything, but it is a perseverance. I got punched out within my first five crime scenes in Newark, probably because I was wearing a suit, which you shouldn't do in the South Ward of Newark for anyone who eventually wants to work for the Star Ledger. And uh, yeah, I've been hit with tear gas three times, almost pepper sprayed once, detained by cops once, well, like I'll fall out to zip ties one time. It's, it's, you just kind of have to have a high tolerance for shit, I think is really the best way I can describe it. Like you're not, you know, this is not, you mentioned I write novels. This is not like that. You're not gonna, you're not gonna billy jack your way out of a situation. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not gonna, to, you're not gonna get be throwing hands that often. You shouldn't be anyway. You might be doing the job wrong. But yeah, you do need to you do need to tolerate risk of danger. You might get a little roughed up. Like I've never been threatened with serious violence. I've never been you know assaulted or anything other than that. It's like so the one time I got cracked in the mouth. But yeah, but but there is there is just it's it's really just be, it's 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 don't be surprised when it comes. I guess like you are covering violence. You're probably going to be in areas that are distressed. You're covering tense situations between, like I said, either either activists and police, or as time has gone on, I found myself mashed between anti-fascist and white nationalists and stuff like that before. And you're dealing with diametrically opposed forces that are just naturally going to be involved in some form of either verbal or physical combat. So, I mean, it, not being shocked by it is really what just has always helped me. It's just kind of like, you certain assignments you just need to wake up and go into like, this could get ugly. 
certainly need to need to be need to be prepared. We talk about preparation a lot on the podcast. That's yeah. an element of preparation that isn't necessarily necessary for others. One, but if we go to if we segue to courts, which is another area that you cover, one example of a trial that you covered recently was the murder of Nipsey Hussle by Eric Holder Jr. And as I read the article, I just read the article about the opening statements, and I noted that there were a lot of things that you had to detail and keep track of that weren't just those said in the courtroom. How do you fully tell the story of a trial like that? So court's a different kind of preparation. It's a lot less stuffing granola bars and water and uh, eye protection in my bag when I'm covering protests and more just reading up or doing the cultural background with, you know, with Nipsey. Some of that's even just, with that that's a special case because it's a celebrity and it's a musician. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the guy who just shows up for opening statements cold. I didn't really cover his actual murder that often. And I'm a decently knowledgeable hip-hop fan or as much as a mid-30s white dude can be a decently knowledgeable hip-hop fan but like nip was not huge on my radar so frankly like spent a lot of time listening to his last two albums i spent a lot of time around crenshaw where he had been killed in the neighborhood he had tried to to buy back and i wanted to incorporate a lot of you know because his his story for those who don't know like he was killed in a parking lot that he owned that was like a local business hub that his clothing stores and he had really tried to reinvest in that same area, he grew up in that area. So a lot of his story was, was his life as this entrepreneur, as this guy beyond the gang life he came up in, as this guy beyond the music. So, you know, it was, it was you know, doing the research on that, spending time in that. It, it's a lot of these people, when you're, covering a, when you're covering a trial, people have lives before their arrest for murder or when they were killed or, you know, unfortunately, you know, I also covered the Harvey Weinstein trial, you know, when they, before they were victims of, of brutal sexual assault, like you, I don't like boiling people down. And this goes for when I'm covering a homicide or a court case, but specifically to a trial and to your question, I don't like boiling people down to their worst five seconds. So I want to, I want to know more about who they are and bring that into the story. So yeah, the opening statements in that case did summarize a lot of that. Like I, McKinney, Deputy District Attorney John McKinney, who's probably not listening to this, but it's somebody I deal with all the time did a very good job of making my life easier that day by summarizing a lot of that, but it helped to know all of it. So you're not, you don't, you don't want to be in a, in a, doing an opening statement and kind of start hearing things like, oh crap, I got to look that up. I got to look that up. I got to look that up. Like I knew some of a lot of what he was referencing to prior because I had done the homework. And you're also observing things like how people react, like family members and such react in the courtroom, right? Yeah. Courtroom reporting, definitely. It's, it's, it's twofold. It's, you know, you're, 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 you're banging out as much as you can to try to, you know, get proper quotations out of the opening statements of the testimony, but right. There's, there's going to be, you know, did, how does the defendant react when the verdict is read? How does sometimes if a witness is testifying and they're not saying something I think is super material. Yeah. I might peep into the galley or the, even the jurors faces. Yeah. Because a lot of people will betray, betray themselves visual with their, with their expression and you need to catch that. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta really, keep in, in touch with people visually and your head's kind of got to be on a swivel because I'm sure you've got people on all sides of you that are that are pertinent to what you're doing. You also do investigative pieces. In December, you did one on racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic text and anti-Semitic texts sent by Torrance police officers that got a fair amount of attention. What is a story like that and reporting for that for that like? That one took about three or four months to put together and it was a lot of begging. Despite California's reputation as a very liberal state, access to police disciplinary records is pretty limited here. And almost no, none of those text messages, none of what I ended up publishing was a public record. Of, the vast majority of it was actually under seal. 
So the background of that case is with August DA's office call, which is the main thing that I cover as attorney's office, calls a press conference about the arrest of two Torrance police officers. And I almost don't go to it because Torrance is, I'm trying to think what the appropriate Jersey references. I guess given given our background from TCNJ, it's it's Ewing. It's the Podunk. It's like a South. It's it's outside. <laughs> it's not L.A. Right. It's not the county seat. It's some off to the side city that we frankly don't write about no much. No disrespect to any Torrance listeners here. Um, I'll, I'll come down to Del Amo Boulevard and buy something at the mall soon. But you know, so I almost don't go. But when we go, he just kind of casually mentions offhand, you know, these guys got arrested for vandalism. They spray painted a swastika in a car, which is obviously bizarre, especially in concerning coming from a cop. But just kind of offhand mentions, oh, also, you know, we found a lot of racist text between them and other officers and people are on suspension, but we can't tell you anything more. It's like, all right, well, obviously I want to know what they said. So it, it was a lot of, you know, those things will get disclosed to certain kinds of lawyers, certain kinds of other prosecutors. It's kind of just, you need to figure out where that information is going to be material to other cases find people involved in those cases and plead with them to show you documents that it's kind of illegal for you to see. So it was just a lot of, it was a lot, it was a lot of negotiating, you know, the, the investigative stories can take different forms. Sometimes it's data analysis, sometimes it's record mining, sometimes it's, you know, dozens and dozens of interviews. This was really like, there are four or five pieces of paper that will blow this open. And if you get that, then it becomes everything else. Then it was backgrounding, you know, I came up with like little dossiers on each officer trying to figure out, because they were, I think, I think I identified, there were 17 officers involved in the scandal. I think I identified 11 or 12 of them. Then it's figuring out, you know, these, these officers, you know, once you start seeing these texts, they're making hateful, violent comments about Black men and women, about Latino men and women, about members of the LGBTQ community. Have they hurt people from those backgrounds on duty? Have they killed people from those backgrounds while on duty? And the answer was, was yes. So it was, it was a little bit like getting, you know, getting that one domino to fall that's going to make the rest of them fall, but then, it, then it's the work, then it's the homework, then it's the research. Courts, investigative, homicides, all these different things that you cover, certainly very versatile. What else characterizes your work besides versatility? I tend to think maybe this is arrogant that I'm a good writer, that I try to humanize things a little more. I, 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 unless I, it's a daily, unless I'm forced at gunpoint, I, I, I almost abandoned the straight news lead to some extent, because I don't think that pulls people in. I, maybe, maybe this is the audience engagement part of my brain, which just, just, ooh, like, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that, this is good. This is points of emphasis for just about everyone we've talked to. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think you have to, you have to tell, you have to tell it in a narrative if you can. And I, and I know that phrase gets bastardized these days. I don't mean setting an agenda. I don't mean framing your thoughts. I mean, just, I try to take, take, like we go back to the court case, right? Like I could write an opening statement trial and straightforward opening statements began and Eric Holder's murder trial, blah, blah, blah. Or like, this is the character of Nipsey Hussle. This is the human who died. This is why people are paying attention to this trial. I think, I think there is, you know, you mentioned I write novels. I think there are elements of fiction writing that sometimes I bring into journalism just for the sake of keeping somebody engaged. Because even with something like Torrance, the first story I wrote on that was like 3,000 words. And as a member of the ADHD generation, I know getting us to pay attention is hard. So I guess I try to find a way to, I try to find a way to give you your vegetables and make them taste good. <laughs> that is a perfect quote. I love that. Uh, so as a crime reporter, you're dealing with police a lot and you're familiar with instances in which they haven't treated reporters well. What are you seeing in terms of the direction, at least in Los Angeles, in your experience of the reporter-police interaction? So this, this kind of all came to a head 
last, was it March? I think it was March. There were protests. There had been, so really this, this refugee, let's back this up. You know, George Floyd is murdered. There are mass protests across the nation. LAPD caught a lot of justified criticism for their handling of the protests. A reporter friend of mine was, you know, kettled and fell down and had to get surgery on her hand. As a result, there were a lot of wild baton swings to people. I know, I think down in Long Beach, a different department, but another reporter was, I think, hit with a pepper ball somewhere on his body or hit with a beanbag round. So there had been, there was another instance in un- unrelated, but it was different, still protest situation. Sheriff's Pebbies had body slammed a reporter, a smaller female reporter who was just filming them arrest somebody and they threw her to the ground. So things had been getting progressively worse because for the most part, I, I don't know how it is for other people, but like your sources largely are going to be detectives, hire up people at the food chain. You don't know line officers. You might know some line officers, but by and large, the people you deal with at the scene are not, they don't know you. So you, you know, sometimes you get mistaken for a protester. Not that they should be treating protesters this way either, by the way. That's, there's not really a difference. They are also just exercising their First Amendment rights. I just have a credential on. But uh, anyway, this all kind of comes to a head last year. There are, there are protests over, over the clearing of a homeless encampment from Echo Park, which is a pretty iconic location in L.A., Myself and a number of other reporters got arrested when they rounded up about 180 protesters. They, you know, normally are not, they're obviously not supposed to be arresting journalists, but they, they arrested four of us. Uh, that caused a lot of outrage. Um, I believe I got interviewed by the Washington Post over that. I got interviewed by NPR over that. Like nothing happened to me. I got zip tied. I got uh, kept for maybe an hour. I never got put on a bus. I never got taken to a jail cell. I got released because of uh, a lot of screaming. One of the rare times Twitter was good for something. Uh, somebody, ironically, a reporter who I had written a story a week before about getting abused by the LAPD caught me getting detained on film. And that went viral or it was close to viral as I guess it could have. So that, so that, that kind of, after that, a number of us with, with the LA Press Club, with the local society of professional journalists chapter, we started arranging regular meetings with the LAPD. We pushed for legislation that enshrined the right of a reporter to be within those police lines in those kind of situations. And that pushback largely has backed them off from aggressive behavior towards mainstream press, credential press, a television station or a radio station you might recognize. But uh, there are a lot of independent journalists in LA, a lot of, in a lot of cities that live stream from these protests that are, a, you could argue, a little less traditional. They are, they, they will lean a certain way. They generally are more critical of the police. Not that, I mean, you just mentioned, I just exposed and ruined the careers of 12 racist cops. It's not like we shy away from doing things like that, but they're, they're, theirs can veer a little bit more to it. You can see opinion bleed into their stuff a little more. They still get horribly mistreated by the LAPD. The LAPD will miscast them by act, as activists. As recently as, I guess, uh, within the past few weeks with the Roe versus Roe v. Wade decision, the protest after that the night before, several independent reporters, including the gentleman who filmed my arrest and helped get me out of custody, got knocked to the ground, swung at with batons. A female reporter I'm very good friends with who covers protests got, again, picked up and body slammed while photographing an arrest. You know, so there, there is still, there's now become the situation where they've, they've been pushed back from, from being that way towards those of us that work for publications that your average listener is going to recognize so they've moved on to targeting the independents now. So that's still something we need to fix. Certainly. Absolutely. And I think you, you said you were very lucky getting zip tied. I don't think many people would, would necessarily uh, view that as uh, lucky than, that it was only that. They're better than handcuffs. It's the yeah. same, same thing I always say with the, with, the chemi- with the chemical agents, the crowd control. I'll get tear gassed every day of my life before I get pepper sprayed once again. 
there so, is a, there there is a great there's a power ranking system to this <laughs> we've we've gone through some rough things that you've covered on your website again referencing that and i want to get to your books in a second but you say the experience has been of journalism has been as exhilarating as interviewing, and hopefully I pronounce this right, Lucadoras before they smash someone with the top rope crossbody in an East LA warehouse. So I figured, since you don't necessarily cover good news all that often, could you tell us the story of that? <laughs> I'm going to show you it. They okay. can't see it. But we will describe this, it. For this, this, this hangs out over my desk. <laughs> I'm holding up a luchador mask for anyone who's paying attention. Classic, classic that you would have seen in in a movie like a, a Nacho Libre, right? Nacho Libre, anything Lucha Libre related for your any of your pro wrestling fans. Uh, okay, so you got to do that. What was that like? Yeah, so so I I was early on when I was here. I didn't really have a beat carved out yet. I was just kind of looking for something to do, and I heard about this in like Robert Rodriguez, the director. Uh, you know, works a lot with Tarantino, does a lot of Grindhouse stuff. He was running a wrestling company in East LA, which is still one of the you know LA is still majority oh Boyle Heights specifically is the neighborhood LA is still majority Latino but there are that's like the, the heavily Mexican Latino neighborhood is over there you know he was running a wrestling company I'm like, okay, the Sin City guy is, is running a pro wrestling company and if I look into it more it's it's you know I got interested because we had written some stories about this neighborhood kind of starting to gentrify and losing some of its culture and the idea that you know what we find out that it being co-run by Robert Rodriguez and AAA, which is the biggest wrestling company in Mexico. So, you know, Lucha Libre is enormous in Mexico, but it's never really caught on in the U.S. And yes, for those listening, I am a level of a from a comic book dork. I'm also a pro wrestling dork because, of course, I'm just going to lose, lose, lose it, whatever, whatever credibility I have. But so, yeah, I was just kind of intrigued as to what the hell was going on over there. I kind of pitched it as a hybrid interesting nerd thing and culture piece and they were they were good for it so they just let me kind of hang out there for 16 hours on a weekend they hung out there for two eight hour shifts of them taping episodes and just watched a bunch of wrestling and interviewed some of them as they were coming out and i got a nice interesting mix of you know you know the, the luchadora i interviewed i think her name was uh, was sexy star and you know this was one of those rare times that you're doing an anonymous interview but like it's you know, normally where, you know source couldn't be named because of fear of reprisal because they might get fired it was you know source couldn't be named because they can't be, they, they've never, like, you know, the, those who don't know, like luchadors in Mexico, they do not, it's not The Rock or Stone Cold or whatever you're used to as the pop popular culture reference here. They're not celebrities. They're just the character they play. So yeah, she wouldn't, I don't know her name still to this day, you know, she's just, <laughs> just sexy stars, quoting her as like Miss Star in the article or whatever. But yeah, it was a, it was a cool feature. I got to hang out with some people I wouldn't otherwise. And it was, it was a good time. But that was another, it goes back to, like you said, the, the storytelling thing there. You know, what the hell was the opening scene of that? I think it was a guy came out of the out of the ring and like just grabbed a dude out of the, out of the audience and ripped his belt off to hit somebody with. But. <laughs> well, that, that's okay. So I, 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 as I said, I wanted to talk about something lighter compared to the heavier stuff. How do you how do you deal with the job mentally? It can be a tough one. I've definitely tried to just barricade when I can. You know, it's it's very hard for journalists not to be twenty four seven, especially with the criminal justice beat. But like, if you are just constantly checking for stuff and this was a problem i had at the ledger you know i never turned it off i was checking in with sources on weekends if anything picked up especially now with you know every every single police interaction of any import is filmed and analyzed you know i have to log out of twitter on the weekends so i don't you know constantly continue to, to subsume that so just try to really put a wall up you know i got heavily into maybe it was part of just being locked up i got much more into physical exercise 
but during the pandemic, you know, running helps, playing basketball helps, you know, just do things that maybe, I mean, this might not be for everybody, but physically tax you enough that you can't think about work because you're too busy thinking about like, God damn it, if I do one more burpee, I'm going to die. Something like that. I read a lot and yeah, the fiction helps too. You know, it's somewhere to pour that energy elsewise, but basically just as much as we, you know, I think a lot of journalists identify their personality is their job and that's great because it makes you take your work seriously and take your reputation seriously and makes you need to be as fair as possible because you don't want to be, you know, you, like you take criticisms personally. Right. So I think that makes me better, but then there needs to be a Saturday. There needs to be a Sunday or there needs to be night. You know, I try to, you know, my wife is great about this, you know, catches me checking the work phone after eight 30, you know, she can be Matumbo swat that thing out of my hands. You know, like we're watching Stranger Things tonight. You're not worrying about the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for the next, the next 60 minutes. Just just, just give yourself your time. As trite as that sounds, it's, it has made a massive difference in my life in the past few months. We have to talk about the two books that you've written. I, I haven't read them, full disclosure. You've... That's it, podcast over. Well, no, let's, let's sell me on them. <laughs> so the two, the, I've written two novels for Paulus Books. They're both in the same series. And I guess this is going to betray my prior advice about separating work from play because my main character is an ex-reporter who used to work for a fictional newspaper in Newark. I was always fascinated by that city. There were so many stories I could not tell from my time there, just things people told me off the record or things that never made sense to dump into, into a piece, you know, interesting activists, interesting even gang members I knew who just nothing they said could ever be used. So I kind of, you know, repurposed some of that into characters in that book. Russell, so Russell, when you meet him in the first book, he is an ex-journalist laid off, kind of working as a PI, but really a name only. He basically cashed in favors with police to fast track to get a PI license, but he's mostly, frankly, helping out cops that are under IA investigation. He's, He's helping either negotiate out complaints so they never rise up to a disciplinary board or otherwise helping bury problematic information for these guys. And he's not happy about it, but it's really the only way he can make money. He gets put on track of a, of a video that raises serious questions about a, about a police shooting and kind of goes on a corruption investigation from, from there. And, you know, I kind of mentioned it before, I was a lot drawing on my own arc. You know, I, I do not, I have to preface this every time I say this, I do not, I've been raised by a cop, I do not have a bone to pick with police, but I definitely grew up in a time frame where I think in general, people, pop culture were a lot more, a lot less critical of police than they are now. And, you know, at home, I was only getting one side of the story. So it was very much good guys and bad guys to me until I started working in Newark and Russell kind of follows that arc. He's a little more critical than I was when I started that job. But he is still very much, you know, willing to do favors with and be overly trusting of the police to get his job done. And the, the, you know, really the story is him ending up on the wrong side of a gun and a badge for the first time and experiencing what that's like and, you know, investigating, you know, the worst aspects of this institution he had blindly put his faith in for so long. Wow. So was the book publishing experience a good one? Yeah, yeah. I had, I had I met a lot of cool people doing that. I. I uh, met Michael Connolly. Actually, I actually met Michael Connolly through a story I wrote for the paper, which would be probably the other, if we're looking for the rare feel-good pieces in my in my back catalog, that would be one. But I met I met Connolly through that. 
tried to keep the discussion of fiction as minimal as possible because that would have been unfortunate as much as that would have been a lovely advantage to take that would have been an ethical problem but uh, as uh, once I got the first book published uh, you know I made its way around to him through agents and publishers that there was another guy at the LA Times trying to write crime novels which is his origin story from some 30 odd years ago and he read it and he liked it and he actually blurbed my first novel which was great yeah it's been fun it's it can be a little exhausting when you're on deadline like writing the second novel was a bit of an there was no also in the height of the pandemic so you know trying to writing all day for work and then writing at night mm-hmm. and so there are definitely days i'm just like i don't want to do this i would like or even now like my, my the newest novel i'm working on is not part of that series it's, it's a sci-fi novel but i am using news articles as a plot device to get some exposition in because there's a couple of different you know there, there's a lot a lot of backstory to bring in and i'm like oh my god i gotta like there are days that i will finish writing on deadline and then i have those i have to write a, a fictional news article that night and you can just like the, the, your face just drops just, like, how, how am I on this treadmill but yeah like I said I've also I've also had a lot I've had a lot of fun doing and I've gotten a, like I said I've gotten a little you know meet a meet a meet a lot of cool meet a lot of cool people and yeah it's a nice like I said it's a nice place to, to dump out a lot of the nervous energy and a lot of the stories you can't tell from the notebook. It, it really sounds like a, a great kind of side passion for you speaking as someone who has a, a number of side passion projects one thing we skipped you want a Pulitzer tell us about that I was I was part of a team that won a Pulitzer. So there was the 2015. There was a terror attack at a facility. It's called the Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, California, which is about 60 miles east of LA. We had a, we we've just dumped pretty much as many resources at that as humanly possible. That was a odd experience for me because I you know every com- most of this conversation we're talking about I'm usually on the ground. I'm usually the person in the thick of it for these things. I was relatively new with the paper, so there wasn't really any trust yet but I was at least had established some repartee as a good and fast writer. So I actually, despite, you know, I was the rewrite guy on a lot of those stories. Somehow, despite being in my late twenties, I became the anchor person on a lot of the news of the day, you know, pulling in feeds from, you know, at that point the the investigations and shooters in that case, you know, went global pretty quick. So I'm pulling in feeds from the scene, feeds from people, you know, interviewing the family members of those who had died, feeds from Pakistan, you know, because one of the shooters had relatives back there. And trying to congeal that into, you know, the like definitive national story of the day on, on these things. So I was one of the people doing that. I wasn't the only rewrite person. But yeah, I was one of probably about 60 people involved in that coverage. So, so when we won the, uh, the breaking news Pulitzer in, I guess, the following year, yeah, I, was, I was one of them in one of my articles. One article I had a bio on was, was part of the entry. So that was, I did not ever expect that to happen in my life. So congratulations. That's, that's amazing. It, it's, it sounds like doing the rewrite stuff you have to be incredibly organized just because of all the different things that are that are coming at you you do i'm not so i don't really know how that worked but <laughs> but you made it work for yeah. the purposes of for the purposes of covering that story all right yeah, the, 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 the piles of court files that you cannot see in the camera are the entire part of the room that you can't see <laughs> two two things to close here you and i are both college of new jersey graduates we've had a number of college of new jersey grads on this podcast most recently time magazine for kids editor ali singer who you were a editor with during your time there and in both your case and her case it feels like your career has basically followed this path of what you would want it to be what was the tcnj experience like for you and what were the biggest things you got from it signal was definitely extremely helpful because i had only really written for my high school paper and it was just because it was so flexible and it was it was student run I got to try my hand at a lot of different things. I covered concerts. I covered the basketball team. I wrote 
I wrote reviews of TV shows. You know, I got I got to do a lot of different styles of writing. I did I did I even did some columns. Actually, the first journalism award I ever won was I, I started a sports column when I was a sports editor. And I guess because I was a sports editor, I could write whatever I wanted. I was at the last the last the last game the Mets won at Shea. I was there. So I kind of wrote a column juxtaposing the ecstasy of Santana. I think they're in like a three hitter and beating Saturday, the Marlins yep. on Saturday and the disaster that followed the next day. Um, and I just kind of, yeah, it was like a goodbye column to Shay. And it was clearly heartbroken, maybe a little bourbon motivated in the, in the basement of the student center. And uh, that, that won first place for column writing at the, the NJPA awards that year over actual columns about important things. I was, I was both, uh, excited and a little horrified <laughs> that happened. I was like, there were probably, you know, actual political columns or opinions on Supreme Court decisions or something. But no, my drunk, sad Mets blog somehow, well, not drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was, I was buzzed. We, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't write under the influence here. But yeah. So, but, but uh, yeah. I and mean, I also worked at TSR. It just let me try my hand at a lot of, a lot of different, a lot of different things. And we, you know, we had really, I was in, I was, I had mentioned to you before, I was in the last class of Dr. Bob Cole, who was the legend of the journalism program there. You know, I learned, was under Donna Shaw's wing for a lot of years, former Philly Inquirer reporter, excellent health reporter. And, and yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, I think we had talked a little about, you know, I had also shot at some of the big name schools. I went after Syracuse. I got into Fordham, but could not afford it. And going to TCNJ and getting to just kind of try, try my hand at a lot of different things, I think really helped me because like you said, I do have to be versatile doing what I do now. And I think if I had just been a hard news reporter my whole life. I don't think my writing would be as versatile. I don't think I'd be able to do different kinds of, of interviews. You know, I'm, I'm as comfortable at a, I, I sometimes wonder if, you know, growing up going to punk shows, both as a, as a, just as a kid and then as a journalist who had to actually like pay attention and take notes at them as a music critic, you know, made me a little bit more adept at note taking in a protest scene. You know, I'm not, I'm, it's not like, it's not like it's uncommon for me to get like elbowed in the ribs or shoved up against something while trying to scribble. So <laughs> The, the benefits of versatility and the benefits certainly of going to a smaller college where you get to try everything as you and I both did certainly something to keep in mind for those that are younger and aspiring journalists. Last question. We salute you for your good work. That's why we call the show the Journalism Salute. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, one that you're not affiliated with, that you would like to salute for their good work? I generally believe one of the most important publications out there right now is the Marshall Project, the nonprofit criminal justice newsroom. Specifically, I think Carrie Blakinger, and if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Carrie, I apologize. We have spoken once or twice, so I hope I was getting it right. I think she's a superhero. For those who don't know, she's a formerly incarcerated person who now writes a lot about prisons and some of the nightmare situations inside carceral settings in places like Texas. And she brings a perspective that is just non-existent. I think in our background, you know, even in our background, sorry, in our business, you know, even today, I feel like journalism still is largely populated by people who had, you know, pretty normative upbringings who came from, you know, not wealth, but never really struggled, never really clawed. And, you know, very rarely people who have, you know, felonies in their background. And she brings a, she, she writes fairly but really beautifully and really poignantly from that perspective. And I think she's definitely one of the most important reporters on the planet, but definitely within the, within the, the U.S. Certainly we salute the work of her and the Marshall Project. I was fired to get someone from the Marshall Project on this podcast at some point in the future. James Quilly, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. 
You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.